Hi everyone, welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 7. I'm Aura, and I'm here with a couple of friends. Hello, Storm King here. Hello, Kagyu here. And um, our good friend Dharma Kirti is not here this week, but he'll be back in the future. Um, that's why I'm acting as host this time. And um, uh, for this week, for our topic, we decided we would just kind of let ourselves talk because we've had um, in our Twitter DM group um, and in our conversations before and after recording previous episodes, there's a million things that we like to talk about. Um, and some of them are only tangentially re related to Buddhism per se. Um, and I actually think that some of our most interesting conversations have been when we get off topic. Um, and so as we continue making more episodes going forward, this is this is for you guys, but also for our audience to explain. Um, I think that we're probably going to have some episodes that are very tightly focused, um, like a couple of the ones we've done in the past. But I think we're going to get more interesting conversation, a wider appeal and probably have more revelatory discussions um, if we allow ourselves to wander a little bit. Because, you know, what links the what links us aside from us all being really cool guys um, is that we're all practicing Buddhists and we're all on in what you might say is like dissidents um, politically. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of of how we decided to get together. Uh, Dharma Kirti and I and we're talking about this and. Um, now that's a great premise for a show and I think we've got a lot out of it, but if we just sit every week, talk about how does Buddhism relate to like right-wing politics, I don't know. It gets a little, it gets a little stale. So that's my little preamble, um, uh, to the, to the week. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I'm not trying to like Bogart the show <laughs> ideas. Or no, man. It, uh, well, we have a couple of different modes. You know, we have straight up, this is this is us explaining through a couple of different perspectives of the various schools, we're explaining Buddhism to you. And then we have, this is the Buddhist outlook on X topic, and then we have three or four Dharmic guys having a conversation. And all those are interesting, and we, we should do all those, you know, as we feel like it. And that'll, I think that'll uh, make the show, make the show good, make it have some variety and stuff. So I totally agree with that approach. No, and I do as well. I mean, there's a lot of topics out there which you can't really dedicate an entire show to, and yet at the same time, they're worth covering in some format, and I think this is the perfect way to do that. Awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so now that the, our dictator for life, Dharma Kirti, isn't here, we can, like, now they can just run around like wild. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. Um, I'm putting that as a joke because I'm, I'm... I've, I've got my shoes on in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm putting that in as a little Easter egg for DK. DK, we miss you, and um, we're looking forward to you being back next week. I believe he's deep in the Himalayas on a meditation retreat. Uh, and he should be come. He should come back with the ability to levitate, or I'll be disappointed. My understanding is that his physical body is at sea level, but that his astral body is indeed high in the Himalayas. But I, I could have that backwards. So he'll be able to come back and tell us whether or not there is actually a curve. <laughs> Straight to the flat earth. I love it. Uh, um, yeah, so this is always an awkward thing to do, but like, hey, let's have a free flowing conversation. Ready, go. But yes. um, we were just talking about psychedelics, and actually, I think that's an, an interesting jumping off point. That, for the record, I I have done it twice a long time ago, and I have an opportunity coming up in a couple of months um, to partake in that again in totally legal ways um and i 
I don't know. I'm I'm putting some thought into whether or not that's something I'm. I think I do want to, but I don't know. I'm not sure. It's something I have experimented uh, with in the past. I was in heavy metal bands like uh, deathcore and technical death metal bands, and I went on three different tours, very short, relegated to one country. It actually, all of three times were one section of one country, being the uh, southeast. And this is something I have done a couple of times, and I would say, as I said, we were talking earlier, this is not something you should do a lot. And by that, I mean maybe once a year and maybe for one section of your life, and then maybe there's 10% of the people alive who should even do it at all because it is something with a huge potential to cause you extreme problems, spiritual problems, physical problems, uh, problems with law enforcement agencies. Um, that said, it is something that has been a very positive experience for me where I was able to shed a bunch of emotional baggage and uh, be honest with myself because these inner barriers had dropped down and things like that. And then there was another time uh, where I ended up sprinting down city streets uh, barefooted and absolutely tearing my feet up in utter terror. So take that as a warning, I guess. Yeah, and I've never been much for using psychedelics at all. I've just been always worried that I'll do one of some of these and just end up going off in some direction and never mentally come back. I'm just one of those people who can't be out of control or, or just am worried of completely losing my mind if I start taking those things. You know, one of the reasons that people take more conventional mind-altering drugs like alcohol or marijuana is because... Um, I like cocaine personally. I, well... <laughs> um, or meth, or, you know, um, bath salts. I'm a heroin guy myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from a sort of from a dharmic perspective, what, one thing that you could say that people are doing when they do that, let's just take drinking it as, a, as an example, drinking to the point of drunkenness, um, is that it, you know, it's sort of, well, drinking is an easy one because it basically shuts down part of your brain and, and then other parts of your brain sort of come out to play. Um I, I think, you know, people are very, very, very different in the many ways they behave on alcohol. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure there are many exceptions, probably even on this call, but we've all seen the person or even been the person who does that because they're, they feel inhibited uh, in a certain social situation. If they get drunk, they feel uninhibited. And it's not that their personality changes, it's that certain parts of their personality are, are able to manifest. And when you're doing that, at least from my perspective, and I'm not a moralizer on drinking because I partake myself, but I, I, it's very easy to see the downside of that because you're not actually making your brain any clearer. You're, you're deliberately muddying it up so that it, it kind of functions differently, if that makes sense. And I can, you can see from like, it's, it made sense to me when I was, when I was in high school and I first got involved in um, Buddhism and meditation and stuff, I was like straight edge. Um, but I didn't, I didn't call myself straight edge or anything. Um, but I didn't, use anything i would go to parties um where people were drinking up through college parts of college too and i i just wouldn't even have a sip um and i wasn't afraid of it it wasn't that i thought i was too cool for school i mean maybe i did on one level but i really did believe that the idea that our brains are clouded um by you know karmic entanglements and delusions etc um and that the point of the practice was to like remove these um yeah, these delusions one by one, and that why would you add to your level of delusion um, when you're trying to do the opposite? And to me, it seemed very clear. Now, my I, I changed on that, and I you know I became 
more of a drinker later on. Um, but to me, the logic of that still makes sense. So the, to bring it back to psychedelics, um, it seems to me that something else is in play uh, when people are taking psychedelics. But I'm not convinced that it's entirely a different phenomenon. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean... The, the pop culture understanding around psychedelics, kind of they're, they're always linked in people's heads to um, contemplative traditions, especially Buddhism, because, like, number one, sort of the, the, the type of things that are traditionally hallucinated on psychedelics kind of look like the art from the East, from India. You know, they're, it's very similar with this, like, uh, multiplication of the same shape and these, like, panoramic, beatific vision-looking type things. And then the idea of it's really tied together for me with the idea of ego death, right? Because if you get fucked up enough on anything, you can, you know, experience ego death. I don't know if people have uh, dr drank themselves into ego death, but people have definitely taken psychedelics in high doses enough to the point where they completely lost touch with their with their ego. Uh, and this is sort of you're sort of like faking it. It's it's not real. Most of the time, it's not going to be something you can take with you after that. You'll be left with a vague sensation of what it was like. Um, and this is something I actually experienced um, in the moment when it was happening. It was something else. Then after it was over, it was like I only had this lingering vagueness about it. Like I had seen something amazing and beautiful, but couldn't really remember it. So, I mean, I think that's the link. And with your, when you're talking about um, karmic entanglements and delusion, I will say that there are some type of karmic entanglements and delusions where the cure may involve having a bit to drink. You know, if, if you were hardcore straight edge and did have these notions about, oh, I'm, I'm better than or I'm worse than or, or et cetera, I'm healthier than you or whatever, and you were caught up in those to the point where they're hindering your practice, seeing the positives that could come from letting loose a little bit, having a couple of drinks with your friends might be the medicine for that. So you have to really be careful, you know, like, and that's something that takes straight out of the Zen literature is that, you know, someone will come to the master obsessed with dharmas and buddhas and kalpas, and they will have to be told, just wash your bowl, uh, just eat when you're hungry and go to sleep when you're tired. And then someone will come to the master and say, oh, you know, I, I sleep when I'm tired and I eat when I'm hungry. And the master will say something like, you'll never ascend to the thousandth Buddha realm with an attitude like that. Do you see what I'm saying? So some of these things that we tend to think of as like inherently bad or inherently contributing to delusions can actually in specific circumstances be good does that make sense <laughs> is that actually yes it does i mean it, and i guess if you think about like for instance with alcohol like you're saying ara if you have in so, well i mean it, it does definitely have that component where it is almost a, a thing that creates more illusions it also is something that is pulling away inhibitions. So in, in a way, it's freeing the mind while simultaneously clouding the mind. And so it can be useful in some context. And I guess with psychedelics, it can be kind of similar. Because, you know, it does create these illusions. But at the same time, it can also, I guess, remove some inhibitions that the mind is typically going to have in some situations. So I think that that's a pretty... There's definitely something there. Yeah, you could conjure up an image of like, um, imagine you're digging a hole, you're trying to excavate something, and there's a big giant rock um, right right where you're digging in your soft earth. You can take like a jackhammer and blast that rock apart, um, and and then you're going to have an easier time continuing with your digging. Now you are going to have to deal with a bunch of like dust that comes up, and you're going to have to remove the the 
bits of rock that you create. So like just getting the jackhammer out is not going to like get your, your hole dug for you. You're, you're going to have to go back to work with the regular old labor, but that jackhammer might, you know, make your, you know, like be a little shortcut. Obviously it's dangerous to start thinking that way. Cause then you're like, Oh, well this, you know, I'm annoyed at this person. So let's go get high. You know, like that's, it's a bad, it's bad path to like use that as a justification all the time. But I, if my metaphor makes sense to you guys, then I, I can definitely see it that way. That is a beautiful metaphor because when you're using the jackhammer, you've taken something with just a few hazards, shoveling dirt. You have like a repetitive motion hazard. It's a little bit hazardous, but you get out the jackhammer and now you're in, I have, I have jackhammered my foot off. Uh, I've, I've punctuated all my discs with, uh, repetitive motion injury from going up and down on the jackhammer you know and and would you jackhammer soft earth so it has to be i think the word is it has to be supremely appropriate right yeah actually to stretch the metaphor probably beyond the point that it should be stretched um the (laughs) the jackhammer is an is an outside instrument you know unless you unless you have one in your garage which most people don't you rent it you bring it over you like you said you know you and storm you've you've used one a lot you're trained on one and stuff like most people aren't right if they just got out of jackhammer and started jackhammering around they they'd be more likely to hurt themselves or something but oh yeah if you haven't had like the three-day jackhammer training you're you're gonna you're gonna have a bad time so (laughs) a really bad time having said all that it has it has utility like it is extremely useful in in very specific circumstances there are some indian traditions which have like an initiatory thing with a psychedelic use. I don't know that for a fact. I imagine maybe in the realm of tantric stuff, there's something like that, or uh, in the realm of the guys who um, I don't remember the name of these fellas, but they like sadhus like smoke a lot of. I know that yes, they use yeah, a lot sadhus. of bong, so it's yeah, yeah it's yeah. related to Shiva. Uh, it, I think it's related to something having to do with Shiva, but I don't know exactly what context it happens in. Right, but it's something that you know if you have this. Uh, traditional framework to put the psychedelic use in or even the alcohol use in or whatever that's going to be miles better than like going to the parking lot of the widespread panic show and buying whatever somebody sells you you know yeah i um yeah i don't know like um it's uh it's it's tough because you don't know i guess maybe other people are better at this um you have to know yourself and your own weak spots because I think I'm the kind of person who's much more likely to justify um, like breaking that fifth precept um, with with this kind of reasoning. Do you know, like you like we said on a few episodes yeah, ago? Because go ahead. It is it is fair to say. I mean, this the notion. It is one of the precepts is do not take intoxicants or at least don't get it, become intoxicated, depending on how you read that. So, you know. It, it is potentially something, if you think it could be useful to a greater understanding, then you could go against that, but is well, it I necessary? Mean, hmm? But for some people, meditation can become an intoxicant. For my dad, model train building is an intoxicant. So, I mean, you, it, there's a lot of room there, and it, you know, you could reason yourself into some, some bad spots. So. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, you know, we uh-huh. said on a previous episode uh, about society in general, and it holds true for individuals as well, which is we always want to give ourselves the medicine that we don't really need that much. Um, and we, and we, we resist that, you know, like in our, in our radically free society that we have, uh, radically free on, in some respects, um, unmoored society that we live in, people are panic about any sort of mooring, right? Whereas really probably what we would need as a society is the opposite. Um, Chesterton talks about this, about like, 
um, I don't have the quote in front of me, so I, I won't be able to frame it intelligently, but um, it, it, it's really important to realize what your own, I mean, this is part of meditation. When you catch these mental loops that you do over and over and over again, because it's, you know, the addict can justify to himself as addictive behavior like that, right? Um, and so even if you're not an addict or something, you you're, you still have loops that you play and you you think, okay, well, this is, this is, you know, this, I need this right now. My, this is my medicine right now, whether that's alcohol or whether that's who, whatever other thing, you know, not a substance, but a behavior that, that gets you out of your little moment of uncomfortableness. Whereas probably what you need to do if you're doing that over and over is do something else. Yeah. You have to break the cycle and this classic, you know, and these things reinforce themselves and you can get in a, in a chain loop, you know, like you said, where over and over again, you know, the, the cure causes its own illness, and the illness is the cure again. And there you have it over and over and over. And breaking that chain involves not taking the medicine, which can be looked at as another type of harsher medicine. And probably, probably the medicine people need is the least appealing type. Right. And I, I, I have a little piece to say here, so just interrupt me if I'm talking too much. But I, you said something about like um, people, uh, for some people, meditating is their – how did you phrase it? Like, well, for some people, like uh, a meditation can be an intoxicating. This yeah. is uh, an issue more so in the Soto side of Zen um, because you'll see a lot of, particularly Master Yun Men, who's one of my favorites, will say like people will you know say something about meditation or say some quip that sounds transcendental to Yun Men when they're having their formal back and forth uh, giving instruction, and they'll say, oh, you know, that's just something you can learn on the bench, on the long bench. Right. So you have to be careful with that. You have to you have to make sure that we're not mistaking uh, these comfortable, peaceful, yeah. quiescent, equanimity-filled mind states for, for something else. Like, I mean, because you, you really can just go meditate yeah. and feel better. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, well, I admit that that's true. This, to me, to me, this is like, um, not that you were saying that Storm, not you're recommending that to our listeners or people on this call, but just to, using that as a jumping off point because, and I, 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 sh I sh maybe I shouldn't even bring this up because Dharmakirti isn't here to defend himself. Um, but, you know, he, he mentioned, uh, you know, the idea that people get stuck in jhana um, or blissful, a blissful state. Um, and yes, that is something, okay, in the school that I follow, that is recognized as a real thing that does happen that the Buddha himself in the Pali Canon warns against. So it's not to say, oh, no, don't worry about that. It's like, yes, the Buddha said this can happen and it's it's not good uh, in the long run. However, like at least the masters I listen to, they're like, if you think that you are, if you need, if you think that you're worrying about too much about I'm getting too much bliss from my meditation or something, I can almost guarantee you that you're not like you're. Yeah, yeah. You're this is never going to think you are. And like, you know, don't. You want more bliss, not less. Like when you get to the point that you're like too much blissed out and stuff, then you're ready for like full awakening and <laughs> you're probably not there yet. So th this is not something that you, this is not the medicine you need to give yourself, the anti, the anti-meditation pill or whatever. Yeah. To be clear, I'm talking about like corner case shit. The average person is not going to have this problem at all. I will. Yeah. Let's make that clear. Like nobody listening to this and probably nobody on the call. Uh, including me, is gonna is is getting too blissed out and it's a problem for them. Like I do a twenty minute session in the morning and sometimes one at night and that's all I do as far as like formal sitting. Yeah. 
so yeah, it's something I guess to, I, I was just kind of listening in and thinking, what, what should I be looking for here? But if it's, if it's something that only advanced practitioners need to be concerned about, that's probably a good thing to know. There's, this concern is probably relegated to monastics. Uh, let's use that as a heuristic. If you're not a monastic, you probably don't have this issue. Yeah, and I, I want to look this up because I can never remember um, how they're um, – you can hear my typing now. I know this is bad <laughs> podcasting, but whatever. Um, the four – there's like four stages of Gianna uh, classically. Um, and by the way, for our listeners, um, Gianna is a Sanskrit term, um, or in Pali it's Jhana, which – basically the same sanskrit and pali this is for our listeners are the two indian languages that that the ancient texts come from um, and pali is sort of considered the older one but uh sanskrit is probably the more literate one and i'm not interested in getting in a battle over like which is better um, to me aesthetically sanskrit sounds better um, but there's a lot of texts in pali that are extremely important so um, and if people are interested uh jana or jana when it came to China, got affected by the Chinese and became Chan. Yes. And then that got translated by the Japanese and became Zen. Yes. And then that came to America and became leftism. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's, um, yes, thank you, Storm. That is where I was going with that. With uh, Jiana becomes Chan and Chan becomes Zen. Um, and those are etymologically linked, even through languages that are extremely disparate, such as Japanese and um, Sanskrit. Um, and so jhana just essentially means meditation uh, in the original scripts, but they, uh, like we've said before in this podcast, if there's one thing the Indian Buddhists love, it's lists. Um, they, <laughs> this is actually probably the, in my mind, one of the biggest turnoffs about people who start to study Buddhism seriously, because you'll find lists in the Japanese tradition and in the Tibetan tradition and in and all traditions, but if you try to go back to the source Indian material, it's it's in some areas it's like nothing but lists. You'll have like the three factors of the four this of the eight that you know, and it, it just goes on and on and on. And certain terms are repeated in different sets of lists in different contexts. You're like, well, what the hell? What are you talking about? Yeah, one of the foundational Zen texts is the it it's, it actually starts in India, but it was like uh, rearranged by this one fella. Oh, I think it was in the Tang period. Don't quote me on that. I'm sorry. I don't know. But it's the transmission of the lamp, records of the transmission of the lamp, or of the transmission of the light. And the whole thing, I think there's like 18 volumes, and it's just a list. It's just a, a list of this person transmitted the Dharma to this person, and then to this person, and then all the way from, from uh, you know, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha himself down to like modern-day masters <laughs> right now. So yeah, big on the list. Yeah. So, but yeah. to getting back to the um, to Jana. Uh, so there's there one of the lists, and this is not a uh, this is not like a supplementary list. I would say this is one of the core twelve or fifteen lists that you find in classical Buddhism that gets that has a core importance, and that's the four jhanas, which is. I see. I can already hear in my mind our Buddhist uh, listeners. Um, coming back at me on Twitter about how I'm getting this inaccurate. So, um, but whatever, it's our podcast, not theirs. Um, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, the, there are four jhanas and they're like basically increasing levels of concentration and pleasure in the meditation. Um, and so, and by the, and the fourth jhana is you can, you can't just skip to the fourth one. You have to go through the first and the second and the third to get to the fourth. 
and the whole point of getting to the fourth, at least in the Thai forest tradition, and I think in other schools as well, is that in the fourth jhana, you have such a feeling of basically mental and bodily fullness and stillness and pleasure and everything that there are no more uh, fermentations, as they call them, um, no more active uh, present karmas. Now, you may still have your past karmas because you're not fully enlightened, but you're you're currently like have reached equanimity. Um, and it is from that point, at least according to in Theravada schools, um, it is at that point that you can start seeing into the ultimate nature of reality, not little glimpses, but like sustained view of of emptiness or sustained view of, of ultimate reality. So the whole point of getting to these jhanas is not that they feel good, but that although they do feel good, it's that in that in these like very advanced states of concentration and meditation that you can do this. And this is the Buddha himself is talking about this. We, we, you know, you can decide how much emphasis you want to put on this or that teaching of the Buddha because he taught a lot. But this is not somebody a thousand years later who came up with this. This is the Buddha himself who who taught this. So to bring my long winded thing to a close, um, to agree with what Storm already said and, and you too, Kagyu, is that if you get to the fourth state of jhana and then you become sort of jhana drunk and never pass beyond that, then that is a problem, according to the Buddha. But very, very, very few people are are like have sustained fourth level jhana all the time. Like it's just trust me, it's like it's not me. <laughs> I'm not the person who's like needs to worry about that. So now I'm repeating myself. Doesn't that um, doesn't that still get you technically like a favorable rebirth? Yes, yes. The teaching in that is like that's absolutely still a good thing for you. Um, okay. That, it, that it, it is a misuse of a human birth if you were to get all the so, way there and then and then lose the lose the thread. Forgive me for this, but I have to ask um, a little Dharma combat here. But you mentioned uh, seeing the ultimate reality, right? You mentioned that. Uh, I'm watching my cat uh, sip water from a bowl. Is that the ultimate reality? Does it feel like it? <laughs> if it didn't feel like it, would that not be the ultimate reality? Um... <laughs> it? it is the ultimate reality. Um... Do you feel like you've you've reached the un the the undying though, and that you'll never be born again because you're looking at your cat? I was never born in the first place. Okay, I mean, <laughs> okay, but <laughs> I appreciate it, and I know it's all in good fun. But I will I will tell you, Storm. This is why I'm not a, a Zen guy anymore. It's um, it's too facile for me, to be honest. What? Okay, I'm sorry to ask this, but what does facile mean? <laughs> uh, it means too it too it's too cute. It's too pat. Oh yeah, because yeah. I, I, uh, it, I agree that the logic is unassailable, but I don't. I feel I can feel a qualitative dif difference in the in like jhana states and everything that I don't. Oh, there, there absolutely is a difference. Yeah. See, the danger here is that like, especially if you're just practicing Zen without like uh, outside of the tradition, the way it's meant to be done, is that it's really easy for people to go, "Oh, there is an ultimate reality. I'm enlightened." Because I'm, I, I don't have any thoughts. Yay. But, it's, but that's not it. You still have to – everything that's there, all the ranks and stuff and the stages, they're still there, except you're not allowed there, – there is no um, grasping to any, like, descriptions or logic or any of that. You have, you have to progress uh, through those totally outside of the words and the philosophy and all that so that – because grasping onto all those descriptions of, of, of things that, that are ancillary to the actual thing – all those are pitfalls. Yeah. So the Zen tradition tries to to get around that by not using those words at all. 
and that's why you have to have a good master who can see as you go through these things, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This almost seems like it ties back to emptiness on a certain level, doesn't it? Like when you're talking about the cat as the ultimate reality, but that's the form and the appearance of the cat, and you're also, uh, but simultaneously you're reading in your interpretation of the cat and the event. But it. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's the cat sipping the bowl of water and there's there's me viewing it and then there's my understanding of it and and all of that uh, is the suchness which is as it is so there's all these different levels going on but the base level of truth is apparent yeah I guess so here's my Dharma combat answer and not my because you know me saying oh, I don't like zen, I didn't like Zen because it was too cute or something like that's that's actually not a good answer that's just my personal answer I guess my Dharma combat answer would be um, that I trust that the Buddha, I trust that the Buddha taught what he taught. I trust that we have a relatively accurate record of it. And he taught the, the four noble truths. And the, the fourth noble truth is the path, is the eightfold path. And I trust that he taught that because that's what's needed. Um, and that, and that, yeah, that, 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 these kinds of glimpses and everything are important, but that we have more karma to expiate. We have more uh, further to go on the path than we think we do, than we, yeah, it, it's. Yeah, it, no, see, this is, this is you being honest with yourself, and, and that is what is, what is what is required. The worst, the thing that holds people back in Zen is not being honest with themselves. So that's why you'll find Yunmin saying, if you haven't seen this, do not pretend that you have, because that will hold you back forever. Right. Yeah. Is is one of is the great? Um, does, does Zen have like a favorite ancient Indian? Is it Mahakashyapa or or do they? Yeah, yeah, it's Mahakashyapa. It's him, and then it's Nagarjuna. Those are the two main guys from the Indian tradition. And it said that I mean, you can think of it this way: like Mahakashyapa uh, attained the principle of Zen, the special transmission outside of words and letters, and Nagarjuna basically used words and letters to 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 lay it out formally. Uh, better than anyone since since or before, or or you know what I mean on either yeah, side. And excuse my ignorance, but I I know the Zen tells the story uh, that Kashapa um, smiled when the Buddha held up a flower. Is that? Mm -hmm. Do you know the origin of that story? Is that from the Indian times? I should know this, but I honestly don't. Well, I don't understand the question. I mean, it. I believe that it happened. Yeah, no, um, I don't. I, think I don't happened. disbelieve it. I'm just, you know. I, I go on and on about the Pali Canon and everything, as pretending as if I actually am thoroughly versed in it. Like it's so large. Like I, I'm missing yeah, huge yeah. sections of it. So I, I don't want to set myself as an expert on it. And I'm just curious: is that story in in Sanskrit or in the Pali originally, and it's just not emphasized by other schools, or is it something that we first encounter in China a thousand years later? I honestly don't know. I'm not trying to. It's not a gotcha. That is something I would love to find out because I had always assumed that that was actually in the either the Pali or the Sanskrit, but I don't actually know that for a fact. There is a chance that, that could be a later invention. I'm going to look sure. it up. I'll put it in the show notes because I'm now really yeah. curious. I, that wasn't meant to be like a gotcha or anything. I just no, no, I, yeah, you know, absolutely not. No, but um, yeah, I've seen this with other people, and I have a couple of Dharma brothers uh, who studied under the same teacher and stuff, and. You know, when it happened to me, and I later that day I went to see my teacher, and he 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 was kind of like a dour guy, being a veteran and stuff. He just wasn't like a happy person. And uh, when he saw me, he busted out laughing, 
and we didn't even really say that much to each other. So it, that though that kind of like I see you and you see me and we and we both know it, it plays out all the time in Zen. Like it, it really is, you know, because I could see where maybe the Mahakasyapa thing could have been invented because that's the structure, right? Right. Over and over and over and over and over. And there are some some instances in the Zen literature where someone tries as hard as they can to fake it. And and that you will find Zen Master saying stuff like, Oh, you almost got me. Right. And that's kind of the point of <laughs> I love that. That's, I love that. Yeah, no. So that's our, kind of the point of no, go ahead. For our Sorry. listeners, I was just gonna say, um, so the Buddha had uh many, many so un- unlike Jesus, the Buddha after like becoming a teacher, he taught for like fifty years or something like that. Um and so he had a lot, a lot, a lot of disciples. Um and in the text, there's certain ones that come up again and again. They're sort of his greatest disciples who then were instrumental in like, you know, spreading Buddhism after the Buddha achieved enlightenment or achieved a nirvana, final uh, nirvana. And uh, some of them are very famous names. Um, Ananda is probably the single most famous. He's kind of considered like the Buddhist greatest disciple. Interestingly, Ananda's name means bliss. Um in those languages. And another one is Kashyapa, often called Maha Kashyapa. And Maha is just the, uh, just means great. The great. Yeah, great. Yeah, it means, that's good. That's, I was going to call him Great Kashyapa, but in English we'd say Kashyapa the Great. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had many. And interestingly, I always bring this up, but pe- people forget that, uh, well, people remember that the Buddha had a wife and a child and everything and then became a monastic. But his son, Rahula, um, is depicted, you know, as just a, a young child when the Buddha first teaches to him. But Rahula became a monk too and became one of his greatest um, greatest followers. And the Buddha has a lot of teachings to Rahula as well. So, uh, and there are many others, but the, that's just so. Oh, and the story of the flower, uh, you can correct me, Storm, but the the story is that the Buddha um, was going to teach one day, and this is well after he'd been established as this great teacher. And and the 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 canon is full of stories of people coming from um, hundreds of miles away to hear the Buddha speak and people will ask him these tough questions, you know, kind of gotcha questions. And, and a lot of the interesting teaching is seeing how the Buddha responds, either with a great, awesome response or just being like, no, I'm not going to answer that one, um, <laughs> which I always love it when he does that. But at one, in one story, the, uh, the Buddha was about to teach and all these people had come and made their prostrations and everybody gets real quiet and is waiting for this awesome lecture from this enlightened master. And the Buddha just holds up a single flower and everybody is distraught. They don't know what's going on. I don't understand this teaching. And the Buddha looks out and he sees Kashyapa looking at him and just smiling, just smiling at that. And that's how the Buddha knew that, it, uh, that the wisdom had been transmitted to Kashyapa. That's the story as I know it, at least. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. It's called the Flower Sermon. And uh, he was actually called Maha Kashyapa. There were two Kashyapas. And after that is when he gained the Maha part. Ah, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Kagyu, I always talk so much, and I, I never want to put you on the spot, but I just want to give you no. a chance to jump in. Well, yeah, what's yeah. your What's your feeling on all this flower serving business? I have absolutely no idea what to make of it. I actually am surprisingly not very well read about the about like the uh, Buddhist disciples, because the only one that I really particularly know much about would be Shariputra, and then of course Devadatta, which I mean. The, sort of the Judas Iscariot of the Buddha for those who are not familiar with him. Um, so it's 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 actually I've never heard the flower sermon before. That's actually kind of interesting. It's 
I can I can totally hear uh, somebody out there is listening to this and wincing uh, that I'm get we're getting some detail of this wrong. But I I will I'm gonna look this up and we'll put it in the show notes so I can correct any anything I said there that was incorrect. Well, we're we're doing our best, and all of this is is arguable at best. And there's a proliferation of versions with different details, so. You know, I, I, that's the other problem. It's like there's probably a different version of this in like every tradition. So, I mean, we're playing we're playing a multi thousand year game of telephone. Yes. Yep. Now that's an interesting question, actually, Kagu. That you, when you phrase it that way, it's you know, there's the appeal to authority, and I think I'm I'm very guilty of this as somebody who's sort of settled in the uh, Theravada tradition, which is mm-hmm. you know, the the trads. Yeah, you know, that's how they, well, that's how they frame themselves and of course that's like extremely um I'll use the word again. That's a very facile way for them to be like, "Oh, well we're the <laughs> we're the old school guys and you guys are just the, you know, like we're the ortho bros and you guys are like the evangelical Protestants or something." There's yeah, cuz there's definitely the the counter argument is often that like Theravada was like this attempt to simplify Buddhism down to like this basic like just re- return to the scriptures, kind of look just at the polycan, almost like the Protestantism. Yeah, no, totally. It could be flipped on its head that way, totally. And the other thing is, like, for example, I, I, you know, I talk about the, the Thai forest tradition, which I, I'm very interested in. The Thai forest tradition, God bless those great masters who are way more advanced than I, I could hope to be, or, or at least than I am now. That, that quote-unquote tradition is extremely new. I mean, the Mahayana is much, much older than the Thai forest tradition. So, like, Oh, I did yeah, not know that. Because in, like, Terra, didn't, like, meditation basically die out in, like, Thailand in, like, the 10th century and was more or less reconstructed in, I think it was, like, the 17th or 18th century using Mahayana sources? This I don't know. and I'm. I've, this is just what I've heard. I'm I, I honestly have no idea about that. Um, I, I don't know. I can't speak to that. But the point is, yeah, that these, you know... Ever is like, you know, when people are like, oh, we're, we're the old school guys. And it's like, listen, it's been 2,500 years. N- none of you are old. None of you are Indians living 2,500 years ago, right? <laughs> no. While we're doing this whole, like, reducing everything to super simplistic terms, let me just say this because I know that it will make people go wild. And I will probably receive a hilarious negative feedback. But I'm going to say Zen is the postmodernism of Buddhism. <laughs> I love it. Zen is fascinating, but the, the, it seems to me like if you don't have someone who can present it authentically, it's really easy for it to just kind of devolve into California Buddhism. That's just yeah. my kind of outside impression of it. That is the danger, yeah. And, and you know, it's two-sided because in one way, it is, there is a danger of that. But in the other way, there is a very strong tradition that is still just like it was back when Bodhidharma came from China. And to me, this is one of the biggest proofs of the Dharma. If you, I mean, Proof. One of the biggest uh, indicators, I guess, positive. Yeah, yeah, is that the Zen tradition has stayed what it is, uncorrupted at its core, despite having functionally no no doctrine presented as ultimately true, none, and no and no like um, official worded practice. Like there's no there is no scripture. You know the 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 cone collections and and the uh, all the recorded masters teachings. They're they're contingent. They're presented as as you know what I'm saying, they're secondary to the experience, and, and this tradition has stayed about that without these guidelines for so long. So this is a huge. I mean, just its existence and that it's still going uh, is a is a big exaltation of the Dharma, in my opinion. I think it's. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I think it's really a strong point, and it brings up an interesting point for that 
is relevant for any tradition, which is that it has to have this living element to it. Um, otherwise, it's just scholarship, right? Um, right. And um, and that, that that is an interesting point about Zen. Um, that that is like essentially it's in a certain you could frame it in a way that like it's never been anything but a living tradition. Like it it, it has <laughs> yeah it has its right yeah it has it, its core it text. Has... I mean it has you know there's certain certain commentaries and certain sutras that are considered core, but it's um, it's not a bookish tradition. I'll put it that way. Well, it's like the Inso. You know, the all the texts and the social technology around it would be the blackness of the mark. But the core of the tradition is what's is what's not there. Is what you can't write down. I'm sorry. What, it's what the middle. The Enso? What, what is this? The Inso. Okay, so associated with Zen, you'll see a a, a painting or a symbol called the Inso, and it's just a circle. Oh yes, that's uh, you, you yeah. draw a circle with a calligraphy right. brush. So I'm making the comparison that all of the social technology and the texts are like the brush mark, and the heart of the tradition is. The nothingness inside of it. I don't know. That might be a little cringe, but <laughs> I think it's pretty good metaphor. No, I, I don't think it's cringe. Actually, um, it's just it's it's one of those things. It actually it's it's probably also an indicator of truth that like when you try to put it into words, it starts sounding cringy, right? Right. Because yes. That, that's the very nature of of that kind of truth. You know, um, I have been very heavily influenced personally um, by. Uh, like Chinese philosophy in general, which I know that's like saying Western philosophy, you know, like <laughs> it's, that's a huge category, of course, Chinese philosophy, but um, specifically like the Taoist schools and like Zhuangzi, um, uh, that style of Taoism. And the concept of the yin yang is so, which has another word, I can't remember um, the, the concept itself, but the, as symbolized by the yin yang symbol is so core and so incredibly profound but it's also like kagu was saying like it, it also is so vulnerable to like the cheesiest fucking cringy california you know just like that symbol alone, you, know, you know i'm gonna have to get on my soapbox here for a second because these okay so the the thing that makes stuff sound cringy is that we're all so thoroughly un inundated with irony and <laughs> we've all heard everything so much and everything all this stuff that is actually core life-changing, beautiful, sacred, ancient wisdom has been turned into, like, fucking Hallmark card bullshit by repetition, by by it being turned into a product over and over and over and over and over again. And that is absolutely a nihilistic infection wielded as a weapon against the people by modern neoliberal techno-capitalism. And the, the more you can extract your mindset out of that sea of meaningless, uh, deflationary, um, dangerous garbage, and the more you can look at something like the yin yang and feel and see its profound meaning, that is that's when you're riding the tiger. That's when you're pulling yourself out in the dirt. Fuck yeah, man! Yes, um, you should have seen how vigorously I was nodding my head as you were as you were saying. Oh, that. I'm sitting I, I'm sitting in my studio with the metal claws, I'm <laughs> like gesturing at my window. <laughs> no, I. I wish I could. I wish I had something to add to that because I feel so strongly that that is true, Storm King. I honestly, it, it, it like not to get too again. Oh, not to get too cringe or cheesy. I mean, listen, even the way I talk. You see how it's it, and I like that terrible. too. I I did it first. It's in us, man. It's a mind virus. Yeah, it is. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, it's it, that. I, there's no better way I can say it. The the entire structure of the modern world is built on inverting traditional uh, symbolism and traditional ideas 
and tearing them apart or swamping them with irony so they mean nothing anymore and then replacing it with pick your modern uh, fetish of sorts. Would you prefer equality? Would you prefer uh, hedonism? What would you like? That's, that's basically it. Well, they rip the soul out of it and sell you a, a, a simulacrum of it. This is why I have a lot of sympathy for, um, I think, oh, I'm probably wading into a minefield here a little bit, but um, like ortho bros on Twitter or whatever, um, I have, yes, you know, I, I, I see people making fun of that a little bit um, because it's there is a side to it. You could say this is like performative trad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um but on the other hand, like, what do you want people to do? You know, like, I, yeah, I'm also, I, I actually went, at, uh, I mean, I, for a long time, I was an attendee at an Orthodox church, actually. It's, and, you know, I think that there's something really there, like this, this desire for this authentic spiritual experience. Like, they want basically to return back to the way things were. And so I think that it, to an extent, like the whole trad thing is an attempt to, like, recapture the spirit of the world that came before modernity. That's, that's, and, and yeah, it, definitely sometimes can seem a little performative. Like I saw someone unironically promoting geocentrism, which is seems to me like almost like more performative than authentic, just from my interpretation. It's also the truth in my opinion, but we don't agree <laughs> on that. Uh, that's an interesting take. I mean, it, it's, I guess one of the things I do like about Buddhism is uh, my background is partially in the sciences. And so I like how I don't have to really go back and rethink that in relation to the whole spiritual practice. It's, it's just something that's attractive to me personally. Um, but no, I, I think that that is something that is happening there, is this desire to recapture the past or something that they feel like has been lost. Yeah. I, I, I think that... Well, excuse me, I, Storm, but I, I think that yeah, the spirit ahead. in which people do it really matters a lot. Um, because if you are... If you are, if you feel totally deracinated and you don't have a tradition that you grew up in, or you've been you've been rejected from your tradition, like is the way I feel about my Episcopalian heritage. Uh, I frankly feel I'm not welcome there. Um, they then, you know, you, you start casting about for something and and you you start latching on to stuff. And to me, there's nothing wrong with that. And I I know I have some people that I love and respect who who have a lot of disdain for that. But I think the spirit in which you do it really matters um, because there's there's a sense in which when done properly, it's admitting, saying like, I know that I'm an atomized person and I don't know shit um, and I need help. I need guidance and I'm going to look to some sort of structure and I'm not going to get it from Globo Homo or I'm going to get terrible guidance. Um, And so, you know, this part of yourself is casting about for, uh, you know, a lifeboat at sea and. And to me, there's nothing wrong with with doing that. And I, in fact, quite the opposite. I think it, it it's something to be encouraged. Um, but then you you can see instances where it's like, oh, give me a break, dude. Like you're so full of shit, you know. Like, and so, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know. I don't have a concluding point to that. No, but I. No. I think, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say. I yeah. I mean, I agree, man. It's it's noble and beautiful, and and really, you kind of got like three basic options. You can either embrace what's been done to you and try and just go along anyway as best you can becoming some type of like irony person or a reddit man or something like there are many options for for that or you can completely drop out and try and build something new start a new tradition or just you know take the ted pill or whatever and move out to the woods and just try and do that or you can 
attempt to become some kind of trad. And, and it kind of breaks down like some people are doing a little bit of fake it till you make it. And it definitely comes off as hollow. Like, um, you know, like <clears throat> a guy who's 20 who converted to Islam and now in, you know, insists on multiple wives and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, the most attractive path is, is to try and revive these traditions. I mean, it, I, I just don't have the stomach to just like give myself away to the the meltdown of, of modernity. You know what I mean? That's and I feel exactly the same way. It's like these people come almost lost my train of thought there. I, I think in some ways that it is sometimes a very cringy. Like I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of whether people are like actually sincerely trying to reconstruct this or if it's performative. But I do think that in some ways you can't just go back to the way things were. Like there is a real crisis in the modern world. I think caused by um, this conflict between revealed religion and and to an extent the sciences. And it seems that this has caused. The, the breakdown of that caused Globo Homo, but the way I almost feel like the way to go forward is to find a tradition that still works in this context and then go from there. That's that's just my approach, though. That's interesting because uh, – go ahead, Storm. Sorry. Oh, I didn't, I didn't say anything. Uh, you know, it's so funny on, on Hangout sometimes – DK had did this with me a couple times on previous calls. Sometimes it shows the other avatar starts making little vibrations and you think they're talking, but they're not. Um, it's when I it's when I mute and unmute. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, piggybacking on what Kagu just said, um, oh shit, I lost my train of thought. Um, what, 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 did, what was the last point you made, Kagu? Uh, basically, that um, it's almost like you can't really just go back. We yeah. we're, we're at this point now where the sciences and religion have at least some conflict. I mean, I know that on at least on the on the ortho side of Twitter among the orthodox. There's like a lot of support for things like you know like young earth creationism or uh, right yeah okay uh, yeah, yeah. I, I follow you um, yeah and what that put into my mind is is we I want to put a mental bookmark in this um, as certain people sometimes say um, and bring it back up with uh, Dharmakirti next time we we talk with him because he had an interesting thread. Um, or I don't even know if it was a thread. It was just a couple of tweets um, earlier this week about um, sort of the practicality of Buddhism. That he, that he had an odd sort of hope for Buddhism in the United States, um, even though it seems like it's such an adharmic place, um, because of the practicality of uh, of Buddhism. That that it is it is there is it is there is very much a show me attitude. Um, in many schools of Buddhism, and, and I would argue in, in the original Pali and Sanskrit canons, that, you know, if you don't believe it, just sit down and try it out. Um, and in my experience, it, that is like the best, the best proof ever. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and he was saying, you know, and I'm sure I'm mangling what DK said, so he can speak for himself the next time he comes on. So in, in fact, instead of speaking for DK, I'll just say my own piece on it, which is that, that is an interesting point that, um, that there is a sort of uh, pragmatic bent to Americans, even today, even in, in our Walmartified, you know, uh, just disgusting America that we live in today. There is still sort of this pragmatic bent to the American character, and it, it is an interesting thought exercise to think: is that something would actually lend itself to more people um, adopting Buddhism? Not that that's necessarily my goal, but it's not not my goal either. And finally, I will just add on that. 
it's an interesting feature of Buddhism that it keeps moving east. Um, it, it keeps moving east, and um, as old as Zen is, it's much newer than uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and which is much newer than Indian Buddhism. And you know, the next place to move east from Japan is indeed California, and it might suck now, but it's only been less than fifty years or so that people have been practicing there. So who knows? That's right. And, and okay, so what you said earlier. Buddhism, I've used this metaphor before, I think it's pretty good. You remember when you were in like a like grade school and there would be those books and the pages just look like this crazy pattern, but supposedly if you look at it long enough you'll see the hidden picture? That's sort of Yeah, I'm a little older like. than you, so I don't remember that from grade school, but yes, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, you know, it's like the hidden picture things, right? If you stare at it long enough, you know, you'll eventually see the boat out of the weird pattern of green and blue. You'll see the picture and that's what it's like. You don't have to you don't have to take anything for as an article of faith you can try it out you can do the practice you can live according to the precepts and then eventually you'll see the picture you'll see the boat that's how it was for me you know i, I had i had the same rejection from southern baptist Pro protestantism that, that you had from um did you say episcopalian yeah. yeah and and so i was like here's something which purports to answer the questions i have about myself and the world and reality and i don't have to believe anything i can just do it it's almost like just more keep an open mind about the teaching and then just do the practices and wait till the picture comes to you. It's, it's a very different approach from this kind of dogmatic force yourself to believe X, which is right. it's very refreshing in that sense. As someone who kind of grew up like with one lapsed parent from the Catholic tradition, one lapsed parent from the Protestant tradition, this is a lot more, this is actually quite natural in a way that a very dogmatic approach is just not. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting the tension that we we all, we've had many times. I think in this in these conversations between that, uh, you know, wanting to respect the masters, the elders, uh, the scriptures, the Buddha himself, um, and and sort of you know prostrate ourselves before that, and and you know, and and to understand that we are but young puppies uh, compared to these you know great wolfhounds, if you will, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, what's extreme, what's in Buddhism right from the very start, which is that look and see for yourself, right? Uh, famously, the Buddha's last uh, words would be a lamp unto yourself, right? And for me, the, the more I see for myself, the deeper my respect is for the patriarchs and Buddhas of the past. Yes. Yes. That is they, actually they go together like a hand in a glove. Yeah. yeah, that is a very revealing thing when you start to realize that, yeah. So where do you guys want to go from this? I'm looking at our little list, and I see uh, meditation makes me taller. I'm not aware of this. All right, this is me. This is me. I have yet to feel this kind of experience, but then I am probably nowhere near as well. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, I'm curious to see what you mean by that. I don't know if I could get any taller. Um, humble brag. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not something that I, I can't even say it's something that I experience. Um, it's something that other people tell me. All right. So this is when I cross a th certain threshold in my practice, in my daily practice, um, it literally could just be measured in in minutes or hours logged. Um, most of the time I do not practice like above an hour a day. And most days I don't even get close to an hour. Um, but sometimes I do. Sometimes if I'm on vacation or just my life has worked out a certain way or I'm feeling particularly zealous, I will sit 
45 minutes to an hour in the morning and then another 20 minutes later in the day, sometimes up to two hours in a single day. And if I do that for say above four or five days in a row, I have people, first of all, they tell me that I seem happy, which it, it's, it's a remarkable how good that feels to hear. You know, people that know me well, and they, I don't necessarily, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm happier, but they're like, dude, why are you in such a good mood? And I'm like, oh, I am? I don't know. You know, so that's a good thing to hear. And then I have people be like, okay, this is really weird, uh, Aura, but are, are you taller than you were last month? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Um, so that's it. That's what I mean. My meditation makes me taller. I've had mel multiple people tell me that. Now, it could be that this this uh, much improved frame of mind is making you kind of stand up and throw your shoulders back a little bit. And, I'm sure. And you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also, you know, like yeah. I carry tension in my shoulders, which makes me hunch up a little bit. I think many, many, yeah. many people do this. Um, and without that, you just sort of sit back a little bit. And, you know, it's not like a Cerno pose. It's it's literally just like <laughs> relaxed and happy. And Dorm King, I know that you probably see eye to eye with me on this a little bit i also just think that i'm i also think my aura itself is brighter and that people don't know how to parse that you know if they don't have like an awakened third eye um and so my, my it's just i'm actually brighter um but that when people don't know how to parse that they're like is he taller like what is that you know yeah i've noticed for me when i'm when i'm doing more practice like every once in a while i'll have a couple of weeks off between layoffs or i'll schedule some time off or whatever and when i do that I, I go up to maybe maybe an hour a day and then i'll usually also do yoga aside from uh aside from that and i noticed that my ability to mix and master stuff and to eq stuff and even to, to get my guitar parts down in like one or two takes as opposed to like 30 tries goes way up way up it's like I can hear deeper into the sounds. Like I, I guess there's less in the way, less cloudiness in my mind in the way of that. Kagyu, have you so had experiences like this? Oh, no, nothing very substantial, but I can definitely say when I do take more time out for meditation, I do notice that I'm a lot less stressed. That and I just it, I make better decisions as a result. I I notice that my word choices can sometimes be a little bit better in conversations. I feel like that. There's a, it's a little bit easier to connect with people. It's, it's nothing really substantial, but I definitely notice it makes a positive difference. Now, maybe in a few months with more time dedicated, but uh, no, I can definitely say it is a positive thing. Yeah, uh, another interesting phenomenon that I um, have encountered is, and now I'm starting to, I, I, it's also in our little Twitter list there, guys. Um, you know, this is sort of bringing it back to magic or, or ESP. Yes. Um, let's get into which I, don't, I love to get into because unfortunately. Yes, guys, let's do it. Neither of you guys were there that time. I think Storm, you, you couldn't make that one. And Kagu, I think we had technical difficulties. Yes. Um, so yeah, DK is not here post-med. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So another one is I'm. I don't know how to put this. I'll just, I'll, you know what? Fuck it. I will just come out and say it. Um, I am very sensitive to people's intentions around me. Not just like, are they hostile or friendly, but also just like, are they intending to walk left or right? Are they, is this guy just about to get in his car? I'm very in tuned to people's body language and that stuff. When I am in a dark place, when I have not been meditating, or if uh, speaking of breaking the fifth precept, if I, if I have been indulging in alcohol and I have uh, like, muddy mind the next day or something i interpret that as like of course this guy's gonna do that oh great now he's walking left 
when I want to walk left, right? You know, and it's like, God, people, yeah. people are just, ugh. And I'm exaggerating. Have you, uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit because if I actually vocalize it that way to myself, I realize how stupid and absurd I'm being. But it's a very, it's a subtle negative set of state of mind that I go into. Um, uh, have you noticed that your skill as a uh, a uh, let's say skill as a husband goes up with your amount of meditation? Because I have definitely <laughs> noticed. That. Uh, yes, mutatis mutandis. Yes, I have noticed that. Yes. Yeah, that is a huge motivator for me. If I get any time off, and I, I'm, the first thing I'm thinking about is, all right, now I'm going to sit for long periods of time, and that is going to lead to other things. Yeah. So that's probably my favorite benefit. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, I haven't actually paid attention to that one. I think I should. Um, uh, well, it's like it's like you're more sensitive, but also it's much easier to control uh, how that energy goes through your body yes. and what effects it has. Yes, so that's yeah. where I wanted yeah. to go with what I was saying about picking up on other people's cues about their intentions to walk this way or do this, that, or the other action. I'm sensitive to that stuff in general, even when my I'm in a bad place um, mentally or from a dharmic perspective. When I am... It sounds like you just have, you just innately have, you're just a sensitive to me. Yes, I am. I am. Um, and I one of the things that's been changed for me the last few years is I... I finally just realized that it's a that that's just who i am because I, I used to think well that's crazy I, i'm not really like that but i i am i am like that so but to bring it to a more positive thing is that when i am meditating and practicing and i feel much more like kagi was saying like it just things just come a little bit easier um to your mind um then i will notice okay dude's gonna walk left and it's like a freeing thing i'm like I'm like, homeboy's going to walk left, so I go a little to the right, and I'm just zipping through the world, and everything is, like, flowing, and I'm part of it. I'm like, and now this guy's going to get in his car, as opposed to me being like, oh, how dare you walk left, you know? Um, so, and then you really get into, like, a, a flow state, and I, I will say that I, that's when we start getting into, like, magic or ESP or something, because when it's, when I'm really attuned to it, um, which is a, it's a weird kind of attunement, because it's not one-pointed concentration because the one-pointedness takes away my, you know, my floodlight type of consciousness about it. I It's existing in that floodlight kind of consciousness, not the spotlight consciousness, but with a sustained ability as opposed to just in flashes. And then it's like I know everything that's going to happen around me. Everything is a huge exaggeration, but I just know stuff that I don't normally know. And it feels like, yeah, it, it feels like magic power at some point. It's almost, it, it, it's it's like your your intuition is stronger. Like you're getting this intuition yes, about it. That's a great way. Of Not like precognitive or clairvoyant. Although I'm sure there's some of that. Everybody has a little bit of that. Yeah, but the, the, but, the uh, lower barrier to entry to, for people to believe what I'm saying is it, yes, it's it is intuitive. Um, and I'm just yeah, in, I'm in tune with my intuition better. One thing that I get, and that I'm I'm kind of just used to it now, is the constant. This is a, a strange way to describe it, but. You know, especially it's even more pronounced when I'm practicing a lot is I constantly feel like there's air conditioner hitting my forehead like that just subtle. There's like a subtle movement up on my forehead. And actually, interestingly, I read a uh, there used to be a the meditation subreddit a long time ago for me years ago. I used to read this and uh, someone on there had expressed to several people had expressed that exact same feeling. just like a motion on your forehead. I think that comes with doing a lot of practice, too. And it's annoying at first because it feels weird and you're constantly like, is my hair on my forehead? But after a while, you just get used to it. And uh, people who haven't started meditating, once you get like a month in of daily practice, you'll start to notice stuff like that. Yeah, man, that's an interesting one. Um, 
I think we have a mutual friend who would have something to say about that. But um, I don't know if I've discussed that with him, but I should. Yeah. Kagu, you unmuted. What's up? Oh, I just find that kind of interesting. You mentioning about these kind of like. I'm trying to think if I, because I've never seen something that I've I've noticed before, which is like really kind of pops through. It just it's 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 very general for me. But then again, I'm also we're talking about someone in my case, a few months of meditation practice versus I guess in your case it'd be years of this stuff. So that might explain some of it, but it definitely does seem a little bit almost like you go through the world more like it flows better. It, it's it's a very difficult thing to verbalize. Like it, it just you, it feels like you're just flowing through with a lot with more lightness when you, when you do more of it yeah and if you absolutely must explain this to yourself in medical and physical terms there it's all there i mean the studies on meditation are done you can go look at them there's no need to evoke anything supernatural if you don't want to this could all be explained uh physically if you want and i guess if you if for those people who are listening who might be like sort of more on the secular materialistic side who are like you know i want to have a religious experience I don't know, sit down on a cushion for 30 minutes a day for a month. Find a, you know, just get, start a meditation practice. That seems to be a pretty good piece of advice, I would think. Yeah, and that goes back to what we were saying before. You're looking to see for yourself. You can. There's no need for anything else, really. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I could use every episode we do to, like, start exhorting people to do exactly that. But, you know, I... I don't want people to get bored of me, like, you know, being like, you guys should do what I do, because what I do is really great. But um, it, it, it is really great. <laughs> no, I, I, you're right. I mean, there is a kind of person out there who has been completely detached from, like, any kind of ancestral uh, tradition whatsoever and, you know, has this kind of skeptical mind. Well, here's something for you. You can approach it completely, like, just with a kind of detachment and open mind and just, it's, it's yeah, just try it. Yeah, I agree. And actually, one of the one of the things that that can rub me the wrong way about the the ecumenical Western uh, Buddhism stuff is this: there's like a million articles about there. Do I, you know, can I be a Christian and a Buddhist and everything? And they they always emphasize the same thing. It, I guess it only annoys me because of my prior annoyances. But the actual advice that they give is actually solid usually, and that is just that. Yeah, you, you can be a materialist and try this practice. You can be a Christian and try this practice. There's nothing, um, you know, there's there's nothing. I mean, really, like if you are a practicing uh, Christian or something, like seriously, ask your priest or your minister or something. Like I, I guarantee you they're not going to. Well, I can't guarantee that. but uh, Well, I, I think there is sort of a problem on the other end. But from our perspective, it probably it really shouldn't be. Now, I guess you could say on like the really deep philosophical level where we could criticize certain things as being like, well, fundamentally their their worldview is eternalist and this could be considered a wrong view. But I think it's more a problem for some on their side who would think that this is like not uh, just... Uh, but do you, it's do not, you, I mean, it's like, forget prostrating to the Buddha or even like spreading good yeah. like just literally sit and watch your breath for 30 minutes. I can't imagine any tradition that would... No, I mean, that that seems fine. Like, I could think of maybe doing deity yoga in the Tibetan tradition would probably be a, probably yeah, not a good idea. Yeah, that might be more problem. Well, look, I have heard from, from, the, from old evangelical ladies with the can I speak to the manager haircut um, that 
essentially they'll say like, oh, you don't need to open your mind like that because that's how demons get in. As if the only thing keeping demons out of your mind is a never-ending stream of inane bullshit. <laughs> right. um, yeah, okay. And also, I'll add yeah. to that, that, and that's probably really rare cases. I mean, you know, those type of people are, are dour about everything. But um, if you pursue our tradition wholeheartedly and take it all the way, you're going to run up against the articles of faith you hold from your other tradition, and there will be a conflict. You will at least have to admit that the language they're expressed in doesn't capture uh, the reality fully. You know, it's essentially saying that, like, that put it in Christian terms, you're never going to be able to come up with something and believe it about the reality of God that is going to encapsulate the fullness of his actual presence, right? That you can get, you can go a long way, but you're, you know, if you pursue this practice, all of that will fall away, and you'll see only the Dharmata. You'll be immersed in the suchness of the true reality, and, and you'll have to deal with that. But that's if you take it all the way. Obviously, you can be a Christian that meditates, and there's no problem. Yes. And, I mean, honestly, I think that the attractiveness, there's a lot less attractiveness of Buddhism to the sincere Christians here in the West than there might be to people who are, like, detached from that for whatever reason. Either they don't really believe the, find the claims of Christianity to be believable, or they're just detached from religion as a whole, and they're like, well, anything that makes sense might be good. And for those people, maybe Buddhism is a better choice than for someone who's already well attached to their uh, whatever uh, group of Christianity they belong I to. I think one of the... I, go ahead, Storm. I, was gonna, I find that a lot of uh, the Christianity and the Christians that are inspiring to me have a lot of similarity to, like, devotional yoga. Like, you know, it's like, I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I have no fear because you were with me. It's like, you know, if you can actually just, like, wholeheartedly, like, you know, completely give your heart away to Christ and rest in his salvation and not worry about any of this stuff and move through life with the grace that that assures you, I mean, that's actually really beautiful to me. Like, I can I can appreciate that quite a bit. Yes. No, I agree with you There's on that. There's a huge it's... portion in... in... In orthodoxy, and frankly, in basically every strain of Christianity, at least on the mystical sides of them, um, of the concept of ego death, you know, of of completely, um, what is the word? Um, theosis. Yeah, it's theosis, and it, but it's also just in plain English, I'm thinking of, you know, completely prostrating yourself before God, like saying, you know, I am nothing without you, um, that God, you are everything and I am nothing. And with your love, you have chosen to, to love me and filled me up with your, your grace, your goodness. Um, anything good in me is coming from you. That That's a, this sort of radical um, self-abasement that leads to, um, you know, glorification, right? Um, that, that, that is a, that's something that's very deep into Christianity. And, and at least in my understanding of it is kind of the most beautiful and noble side of that that is there's very easy to see an analog in that to to the process of buddhism of uh you know uh, of, of defeating the bad karmas of, of you know getting rid of the self self-grasping it's like the pure land right you just recite the name and leave it up to him and and be good you know Namu Amida Butsu. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. kind of like the, uh, the Hesychast Orthodox monks who will just all day in their head, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner, and, and twirling the prayer beads and, and all Sometime that. Sometime we have to get a, um, a Pure Land Buddhist on here to, to um, defend Pure Land Buddhism because I think it's the easiest one to um, <laughs> be extremely skeptical of. Um, 
Um, well, I mean, assuming you're just looking only at the traditional forms of it, yeah, I would agree with you. Sounds like we have a good topic for. Um, okay, actually, no. Let's 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 get into. So I'm going to butcher this because I'm not a Pure Land Buddhist, and neither have I ever really read up on it. But it's uh, no. a school that's in a few countries, um, but there's certainly certainly in Japan. Uh, what do they call it there? What's the word storm? Um, Amida. No, that's the name of the. Book. Yeah. I uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's the Amida Bodhisattva, who's supposed to be, if you believe in 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 the, in, in, uh, in the Amida Butsu, I guess is the Japanese. I, I'm not right. A, that's Hua right. Yen is what it's called in Chinese. That's what I was trying to think. Hua Yen Buddhism. I, I, is that their te, that's their um, Avalokiteshvara right. or Guan Yin? No, right? no, it's not Guan Yin. Yeah. It's Hua, okay. Hua Yen, uh, which means like. Um, the Flowerland Buddhism, or something like that. I think uh, it might be canon in Japanese. Yes, K A N N O N. That's right. Yes, that's right. Uh, sorry, I cut you off, Kagyu. Um, the the idea is that it is that you're not trying to become a Buddha in this lifetime. It's the idea is that you're trying to get reborn in the heaven realm and the then become a Buddha. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's shortcut Buddhism. Yeah, it, that's my impression too. But the thing is, I've given it lit, like almost no thought at all since I first heard about it years and years ago and i actually i'm not being ironic when i say i would actually love to have a pure land buddhist come on here and you know and offer some pushback and be like here's why you guys are retarded and and, and pure land buddhism is awesome <laughs> we could do some fun interfaith stuff if we could get um uh what's his name the guy who used to run thermidor magazine the very serious orthodox guy we could try some of that that'd be interesting i would love that yeah, I try to be fairly ecumenical in my approach with other Buddhists. It's but um, there's a few out there like Soka Gakkai International, which I'm really just like, eh, no. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, you know, the first there's the the California Zen people that we all dislike, and then there <laughs> are you know there are straight up fraudsters like uh, who is this Tibetan guy? Uh, uh, I don't want to get Chogyam Rinpoche. Is that that isn't that new Kadampa tradition? Is it? Because that's maybe I think that I've heard like that's sponsored by the Chinese government to some for I just as a way of splitting apart the Tibetan Buddhist community and sewing and it, it it's just like uh, yeah that's I'm I'm trying to look up this guy's name. Um, do you guys know this only came out like last year? He he wrote the book the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Do you know this guy? I am not familiar with the name, though. No. Okay. Um, well, I'm being a bad podcaster again. Um, uh, okay. Sogyal it's... Rinpoche. That's his name. Yep. So Sogyal Rinpoche. Um, he is obviously from. He's Tibetan um, by blood and birth. Uh, he's theoretically in the Nyingma tradition, um, and he wrote this book that was really popular in the West. I had a copy that I read probably three or four times. This was a long time ago, um, called the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which is obviously a, um, a takeoff on the famous Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, and it's it's sort of it's very much you know California pop Zen, although with the uh, Tibetan flavor. Anyways, it came it came out recently um, that he was like sexually abusing and uh, like his female. Um, underlings and stuff and when i say sexual abusing i don't mean like ooh, it came out that he slept with some of his students which is problematic in and of itself um but i don't know if that goes to being abuse but it really was abusive and there's like gross stuff like he was at, you know like he'd like 
make make them watch like uh uh what's his name lbj type stuff like make make them watch him like take a shit and everything <laughs> like um and this was not like creative zen masterism or whatever he was just like a foul person um yeah so. it's just like uh shogyam trungpa rinpoche with his crazy wisdom shit he did it all the same shit it's the same story okay but i don't know was he an enlightened master because that this at least the version of that i read about this guy sogyal rinpoche is that he's just a shit bird yeah i don't know i can't speak for this guy I, I, my instinct is no yeah well i should i should um, bring it up because i'm not expert expert on it but, but my point my yeah. point was that uh you know you, you have your like annoyingly la-di-da people and then you it is true i mean you, you do have fraudsters out there yeah unfortunately that's true and i mean yeah they definitely do exist unfortunately Way to bring things to a crashing halt, Aura. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Hmm. So, we got a couple other things, or we could end it here if y'all want to. What? No, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> we were mentioning Alan Watts. Yes. Oh, yeah. We were speaking about him earlier, and I, you know, it, it's, I think, Aura, you were saying, and I kind of, have sort of the same feeling like originally before I really got into Buddhism when I was just kind of interested in Eastern religion and, and, and broadly I really liked Alan Watts I thought he was really well informed and very and, and I, so I viewed quite a few of his lectures on YouTube or that have been saved on YouTube and then since then I mean my feelings have gotten a lot more mixed because of course he's associated with a lot of the hippie boomers who have been you know, ruining Buddhism ever since they got interested in it. And I guess, you know, it, it is something that I have a fairly mixed feelings on. And I think both of y'all are in the same kind of... Yeah, I have mixed feelings on Alan Watts, but I would call them strong mixed feelings. Um, it's not so much that I'm ambiguous, it's that I, I actually feel pretty strongly. So I'll, I'll, I'll speak for, for our listeners. I think most people have heard of Alan Watts. Um, he was... English, actually, interestingly, he's Episcopalian. Maybe that's part of the reason I um, feel connected to him. And he was um, he was a student of theology. He has a doctorate in the in Christian theology, um, and he got into like comparative religions back when that was actually a real field and not just something that undergrads take because they think that being an English major sounds too boring, so they become comp, comp religion majors instead. Um, and he got he got very interested in um, Zen specifically, but then Buddhism in general, and then Vedanta and Eastern religions in general. He knew um, classical Chinese. He knew Japanese. He translated a lot. He went. He moved to Japan. He lived there for uh, a time. Um, he lived at a monastery, although I don't think he ordained. I, I'd have to look that up. Um, but my point in saying all this is that like he he was a serious student of the things that he commented on both the western tradition and eastern traditions and he started teaching when i say teaching i mean he never set himself up as like a zen master he just started giving lectures on the things that he knew about in sausalito in california and he like lived on a houseboat in sausalito and this would be like starting in the late 60s but really in the early 70s is when he got a lot of um acclaim and he wrote a million books um some of which are quite scholarly and some of which are very much like the prototype for like what we've been calling California Zen. The thing I would say in Alan Watts's defense is that he is an, he is the original article. Um, all these 
super annoying people writing the same book in 2019. They're just trying to recreate what Alan Watts uh, was able to create in 1972 or whatever. Um, and I think that he can, he has a lot of wisdom in him and him in, he's one of those people you have to look at him, the phenomenon in and of himself and not the shit that grew up after him. That's what I'd say about Watts. Yeah. Treat it. Don't treat it as a primary source and you'll be okay. You know, just, uh, he, he has a lot of, a lot of interesting things to say. Just don't read him the way you would read the Sutras or, uh, the Koan collections, stuff like that. It's a different, it's different material. Alan Watts um, had a very original way of coming up with with what he called, and just cut me off at any moment. Um, but I, uh, what he called the the fundamental myths of of how we view the world, um, and he he called the founding, let's say, the uh, how do we put it, the the Abrahamic religions had this idea of the world as an artifact, and that the world is made out of clay uh, in the same way that the, a potter shapes the clay and that God shaped shaped the world and created it in the same way that a potter creates a pot. And man, in fact, the myth of man in the garden is, is the same as well, that God formed the body of Adam out of the earth and breathed life into him. Um, now, what's interesting about that myth is that then he starts contrasting it with other myths. And he says, you know, it, during the Enlightenment and during the Scientific Revolution, people decided that they didn't believe in the in god anymore in this animating force but they never got rid of the idea of the artifact so which is not a it's not a given that it would be that way it's just something that's stuck so deep in our minds that we still think of the world as an artifact so now we view it as a dead artifact that has no meaning to it but we still think of it as a thing um and he he called that second way the fully automatic model of the universe. So the universe is like a watch without a watchmaker, right? Very complicated gears going around in circles and stuff. Um, and that's sort of the, the modern, secular, Western way of looking at the world. Contrast that again. Now, I know I'm rambling here, but I think this is fascinating. Contrast that now with a Chinese idea, which views the universe as an organism, something which grew out of the conditions, um, sort of by the laws of itself. Or the Indian view of things, the pre-Buddhist and post-Buddhist, but pre-Buddhist Indian idea of the world as a drama, that the world is a dream of God, that if God went to, if you could dream anything you wanted in a given night, you would go to sleep and dream the most amazing pleasures, right? Orgies and wonderful food and happiness and everything good. And you'd wake up the next morning and be like, oh, that was a great dream. And that night you're like, I'm going to have that dream again. It was a lot of fun. But if you could do this infinitely, you would start dreaming all different kinds of things. You might dream, you know, tonight let's have a surprise and dream something scary or dream something bad just to see what that was like. Then you wake up and go, wow, that was crazy. And if it went on long enough, you would eventually dream the life that you are having right now. Um, and then at the end of it, you're going to wake up and realize again that you are God and that's a dream. Now, neither I nor Alan Watts is advocating for one or the other ways of looking at the world. But the, when you see how deep our mythological ideas about the way the world goes and how they are not necessarily have to be that way at all, it can be extremely eye-opening. And Watts on this, he gave a series of lectures on this idea. And to me, it was extremely transformative, not because I didn't settle on any one of those ideas. But when he goes into depth on them, you start to realize how much of what you think uh, is so deeply, deeply um, determined uh, by assumptions that we just... We don't even have categories for questioning them. I think anyone that 
that gets into this stuff is going to, especially Zen, is going to have an Alan Watts phase. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, uh, you know, the Dharma is like a sword. And with it, you can cut away all of those things. Like, I think something that may be unique to Zen, maybe not. Well, I know it's, it's definitely not unique, but there's an emphasis on it in, in Zen, is that, like, all of this stuff, all of those myths that are so deep they're hard to see, and all of this meta-epistemological stuff that's very hard for laymen to think about, get at, realize, even conceive of, it all functions within a certain realm. And once you've perceived in your bones the futility of working in that realm to get at the ultimate, it all drops away all at once. Everything falls away. And, you know, meditation is somewhat this process as well. You're you're, you're in a battle uh, against your habituation of using, I guess we'll just say words or concepts or whatever. Um, but, you know, you can't, ah, what am I trying to say? I guess, I guess, you know, it all belongs to this, to this category. You're, you're bought into this method of description and belief and concepts. And so, you know, no matter how deeply certain concepts, certain myths are ingrained into you, and how they structure how you go about your life, no matter how, how deep and inset they are, categorically, you can do away with that entire method. And it cleans out the depths as well. Does, does that make sense? Did I stumble over that? It, go, Kagyu. <laughs> well, it's actually, when Alan, I think that the, 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 this, what, he, what Alan Watts was saying about worldview is really interesting because... You know, if you wanted to just give like a really basic uh, distinction between what we might call the very broad Eastern worldview and the very broad Western one, the Abrahamic one, would be that essentially the world is seen as cyclical in most Eastern traditions. Both, I mean, either because time, there's like, time is kind of an illusion or more or less that just you have this kind of cycle of, um, in Hinduism, of the various yugas, or in Buddhism, it's just like this kind of dependent origination that has no beginning and no end. Or in Jainism, it's, it's explicitly cyclical as well. Whereas Christianity, it's, or Islam, or, or Judaism, it's seen as explicitly like there is a kind of direction to history. And there's like a particular endpoint, and so it, there's like, it's, it's, it's linear. And what's interesting is that the secular worldview doesn't really separate from that at all. And so you now have this kind of, the same idea that history has a direction, but there's no one directing it. And that's just, it, it's kind of remarkable in that respect. Yeah, that's like the it's Marxist, that I, you know, that's the, the easiest critique to make of Marxism, is that they, where did, where does this direction in history come from? Where, where, <laughs> a grand watchmaker, as they yeah. say. I think that's what Watt says as well. No, and, and, and it does seem kind of interesting because if if you kind of if you decide to get if you decide that your worldview can no longer sustain this kind of person or this being that gives direction to history, it, it almost would seem logical that you should then fall into some kind of cyclical view of existence. I, I it just as an alternative to that, it, it's that's just I, my personal no, take on it. I agree, and I, I think that that is one of the things that makes Watts good is that as Storm said before, um, you know, you can't treat him as an original source. And then as Storm said a little bit later, also the key to all of this, of course, is to 
see it with your own eyes, which is, and, and that's why I think most people have had the experience of meditating and almost starting to laugh because you're like, oh, oh, whoa, I thought that this was the case, but I, I now see that it's not. Um, but with those caveats that you should do it on your own with original sources and, and your own practice, Watts is in my book, my book, maybe that's me being a little bit simple minded. I don't know. But Watts is really good at pointing out these contradictions in a sort of a friendly, chummy way. So you don't he never comes across as like, you morons. I can't believe you think that the world is a watch. He's like, have you ever considered that maybe you're looking at it this way and that there's another way to look at it? and the cyclicality of things is another thing that he comes back to a lot. Um, and also, you know, the again, to bring it back to yin yang, you know, the idea that there is no white without black, no black without white. There's no life without death, um, which is a hard one to wrap your mind around. But if you sit and think about it long enough, it, it is absolutely true. And that everything is a, a series of on off pulses, even light, you know, even sound, everything um, is, is, you know, just vibrations happening at different levels and different states. So how can you point to any one thing and say, this is it, this is the one thing, this is the way that it has to be. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of just playing mind games and word games and stuff, but to the degree that it opens people up to, you know, questioning these, these radical assumptions they've made, I, I find it very helpful. And I, to, to get back to what you said, Kagyu, I, I think that that uh, contrast between, yeah, a linear view of history and a cyclical view of history. When you're inside a, a linear view of history, like the cyclical one a, you may not even have thought about it. B, it seems like stupid almost. But there's no reason for that to, to be the case. It's just your prior assumptions. Well, let me um, let me book in this with a question, right? So in talking about these, uh, these views of history that are deeply ingrained, let me ask you, and either one of you guys can answer or neither one of you can answer if you don't want, but every view, it's made out of the same type of things. What what kind of things is every view made out of? And what are the limits of those things? That, those two questions are the key to all this. Well, I mean, any interpretation of history is going to be a mental construct. So it's essentially built out of ideas. It's built out of basically not assumptions. Right. Right. And we know all about their limits, don't we? Yes. So what are we left with if we don't use those? You don't really have anything at that point. I, it's you, just, are you sure? You have. You, you don't have an you interpretation. Have, no, you don't. You just have it. You it's have this. Events, things that appear. The word I'm, uh, I like is the suchness. Suchness, Tathagata. yes. The such, yes, the Dharmata, Tathagata. That's what we're after. Yeah, man. I, I endo do endorse, 100% endorse. <laughs> you guys still there? I yeah, am still yeah. here, yes. Yeah. That's... Um, excellent, man. Um, Storm, should, was that a good way to wrap things up for the, for the week? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I yeah. about Watts, as you guys can tell by how long-winded I was about it. Um, I, I, he's somebody I could go on for like a whole um, hour because it touches on I think some really interesting philosophical points, but it also it, historic. Like he is the the knee plus ultra of this of the California Zen people. Like he.
he is the nexus of all that shit that we don't like. So that's why I find him an interesting topic. So maybe we'll come back to that one. Yeah, he's kind of dangerous in that respect because he can give people a wrong impression of Buddhism. It's almost like it's it's almost to the point where I've actually recommended people read Doctrine of Awakening by Evola instead, just because while I still think that that book is also faulty, it's it has the faults are not built into a Buddhism in America quite so strong. Yeah, yeah, it's like another case of a, the the right kind of medicine for the particular kind of disease we have. I I agree with you on that. Um, actually, that would be an interesting like double pill for somebody. Like, okay, you want Western interpreters of Buddhism? That one Alan Watts book and then Doctrine of Awakening. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, read uh, read on the taboo against knowing who you are in Doctrine of Awakening. Read them back. There to you that. go. I like that. There's your there's yep. our yin and our yang. Um, and uh, and I do think we should talk on uh, the Beat Generation at some point, which is tangentially related but different. Um, just because I know Storm was influenced by that stuff, I know I was. So, um, yeah. All right. So. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you very much, Kagyu and Storm King, for being here. Um, please, uh, yeah, hit us up on Twitter um, with your comments, your questions, and everything. And we'll be back, I think, next week with um, our regularly scheduled um, live stream, I believe. In which case, um, yeah, we'll be back. One way or another, we will be back. Thanks, guys. Bye.